Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Joja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined today by... Giselle Donnelly. I'm with the American Enterprise Institute. And... Dalibur Ruhaj, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, our first episode in the new year, um, we have Fred Kagenbach, who is Senior Fellow and Director of Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute and our favorite guest. So um, thank you, Fred, for joining us today again um, and uh, helping us uh, look onto the next months. We've, you know, according to the calendar, just started winter, which means um, also winter war. And so maybe to start off broadly, we're looking at, maybe we'll go into detail about um, some of the uh, attacks on either side and um, where we see mobilization going, where you see mobilization going. But to start us off, can you give us an overview of what um, you are expecting in the coming two to three months. There's been a lot of speculation, including on our podcast, that things might be stalling because of weather. It got muddy. Now we're waiting for the ground to freeze. Um, we've just heard the Russians asking for a ceasefire along Russian Orthodox celebrations. Uh, I've seen just now the response of the Ukrainian defense forces, um, seeing that ironically, let's put, just put it that way. So where are we in your understanding and where are we heading in the next couple of months? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. It's, um, it's, it's great to talk with you all. Great to see you again and Happy New Year. It's not really the weather that has slowed things down. We've gotten through the the muddiest part of the muddy season. That did slow things down in, in various places on the front line, although both sides continued offensive and counteroffensive operations throughout the muddy period as we uh, had forecasted that they would. But of course, it is difficult to make a lot of ground. And so progress was very slow on both sides. I, I, I can't tell you precisely what the conditions are all through the front. Things seem to be freezing in the northern part of the country. We still have some very muddy areas in the south. In places where it's not freezing, though some the ground has dried out, some where it's we're not quite seeing the same sort of you know Flanders fields deluge in most of the front. So, I think conditions in, are generally improving even short of the short of the freeze. I think the f- principal factor that's holding the Ukrainians back at this point is the trickle of Western support and the fact that the West has been well, that we have not been giving the Ukrainians tanks, um, that we have only just started giving them armored vehicles of any variety, and that we just have not displayed the necessary sense of urgency, in my judgment, about providing them with the systems that they need to continue the counteroffensive operation to liberate their people. So I personally think that that's uh, probably the biggest drag on uh, Ukraine's ability to conduct counteroffensive operations. I say that in part because Ukrainians themselves say that all the time. On the Russian side, uh, the team at ISW has uh, said that the Russian offensive operation around Bakhmut has culminated. We say that noting that there is a lot of uh, continued fighting. The Russians are continuing to throw uh, soldiers into that meat grinder. But uh, we judge that the Russians have effectively lost the ability to uh, continue to make significant gains around Bakhmut, having 
taken fearful and really unjustifiable losses in absolutely incompetent and barbarous uh, human wave attacks, basically. Human wave is a little strong, but not, not, not very, really. We now see the Russians lining up a lot of combat power in uh, Luhansk. In general terms, my instinct is that the Russians probably intend to conduct some kind of offensive operation in Luhansk. It is possible that they are simply seeing the Ukrainians lining up for a counteroffensive operation in Luhansk and are preparing either to preempt or receive it. Um, but given what we're seeing in terms of force concentration there, I would not be surprised if the Russians tried uh, an offensive operation of their own uh, in Luhansk sometime in the coming months. Uh, the Russians are generally pulling forces away from Kherson, which opens up some potentially interesting opportunities if the Ukrainians can get across the river. There are interesting things to talk about there if you want to talk about that more. People have been expecting the Ukrainian counteroffensive from Zaporizhia to the south for a long time. Conditions there have been really pretty bad. Um, and I also don't know to what extent the Ukrainian reinforcement of Bakhmut uh, may have interfered with those kinds of preparations. I, we don't really have visibility on that. We just, we know the Ukrainians have reinforced Bakhmut. Um, I don't really know where that's come from. So it's possible that, that I don't know whether that's going to happen uh, or not. And then, of course, we have the discussion about whether the Russians are going to invade from Belarus again. Um, and there we had a lot of discussion about that. The Ukrainians were warning that that was a real possibility. Uh, we've started to maintain our own tracker of indicators. We haven't seen a clear positive indicator of that course of action for a long time. We've seen a lot of negative indicators and a lot of ambiguous indicators. It's very clear that the Russians are conducting an information operation to persuade the Ukrainians that they might conduct an attack from Belarus and that they are succeeding with that information operation to the extent of pinning Ukrainian forces on the frontier there. Our own judgment is that the Russians do not have the capability to generate an effective offensive force for a renewed drive from Belarus on Kyiv that would go very far. And this gets into the larger problem that the Russians have, which is that not only have they run out of trained manpower, but they, more devastatingly, have run out of equipment and they have run out of ammunition. And so we see the reports that they have drawn down all of the ammunition stocks from Belarus. They've drawn down most of their own ammunition stocks. They've had to reduce the rate of artillery usage um, on the front and concentrated on particular sectors. And they don't have tanks to put into the field. They don't, they just, they don't have the wherewithal to equip the untrained forces that they have levied. We probably will see another mobilization wave. The Ukrainians have warned that there would be another mobilization wave, and I'm perfectly prepared to believe that. The Russians have continued mobilization, a sort of crypto mobilization, even after they announced that they'd stopped. But it doesn't really matter because at best they can put rifles in these guys' hands and put them into the field. What they can't seem to do is equip them and supply them to conduct, to open an entirely new front of mechanized maneuver warfare. So they might try diversionary attacks from Belarus and Putin might be delusional enough to imagine that ghost armies will sweep down um, if he's in full Hitler 1945 mode and, and hallucinating armies the way Hitler did, then he, he could. I don't think he will, but 
that would be the only way that that could happen in is in 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 his mind. Uh, Fred, I, I I would like to peel the onion back on that great tour of the horizon, particularly in regard to her, the Harrison front, if we can call it that. But before we do, it also seems like there's been a lot of duck paddling under the water uh, in Moscow. Um, you know, um, Wagnerites uh, seem to be not trending as much as they used to. The regular army types seem to ha- uh, have won back some of their uh, street credit, you know, and this is all sort of like shadows on the cave wall and stuff like that. But I'd be interested in hearing what you think this amounts to, if anything significant. Well, the Prigozhin evil clown show continues unabated and um, Prigozhin and his uh, guys continue to flex. Um, his star has not started to set, although I think its its rise has slowed. And of course... He's, cu- he's, he's culminated. In well, of, uh, I mean, it, I think part of... Moving toward well, power. Well, he was... I mean, he had claimed Bakhmut for Wagner and he has now had to admit that Wagner isn't going anywhere around Bakhmut. So that's a major setback for him on the on the first part of the front line that he'd actually said, we're doing this and the MOD isn't. And then he also had the DNR guys were claiming that they were doing stuff and he'd say, whack them around and say, no, you're not doing anything around Bakhmut. This is all Wagner. And now we, he gets to say, oops, you know, great. I guess it's all Wagner, but we're not going anywhere. So that's that's a problem. Uh, we're enjoying the little war that he's gotten into with the mayor of St. Petersburg, which is also highly amusing. Um, it seems that somebody actually got around to trying to charge him with the crime of running a mercenary outfit, which is in fact a crime in Russia. Um, I, I, I gather he got that squashed, but it's I've just been sort of waiting. That's been kind of a dangling a musical note that needed finally to get to tonic and it finally did, which was, you know, which was, which was good in terms of the Russian conventional military. Yes. Putin is balancing. I think Putin is, is shifting back to a position of trying to establish balance between power centers. So he's not going after Prigozhin. He's not going after Wagner. He's not cutting them down, but he himself is building the Russian conventional military up more. And I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, The key one is that it doesn't do Putin any good with his people to stage press conferences surrounded by Wagner uh, war criminals. So he is has had a lot of uh, press of him hanging around with, you know, guys in field uniforms, like he's, you know, an active military commander, like he's Stalin around the table with the Stavka kind of thing. Yeah, and like they're soldiers when they're actually actors, right? <laughs> well, right, okay, but I mean, it is it is absolutely mind-bogglingly fascinating that he can't even pull off this particular kabuki play. I really want to know who that blonde woman yeah, is. Everybody wants to know who that blonde woman is. <laughs> the, the one thing we know is that she's certainly not who she was presented as being. But... Um, the the Zelig of, uh, of Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so, I mean, it's fascinating. He can't pull this stuff off, but he's also balancing. And look, I mean, I think he's also realized if he ever doubted it, that there are functions that only the MOD can perform. And if he wants to have an army in 2023, he's going to have to have an MOD. And that means that he can't just let these guys circle the drain. 
again, though, so what does he do? So he goes down to Rostov and he gives his rather pathetic New Year's speech after having given Surovikin a medal. And one might ask, exactly what did Surovikin do that warrants his salary, let alone a medal, given that you know, he withdrew from Kherson. Okay, well, that wasn't a catastrophe. So I guess when the Russians conduct a withdrawal that isn't a catastrophe, that's worthy of a medal. It's all relative. Yeah. Right. And then he's ordered and overseen this massive uh, indiscriminate, or not indiscriminate, actually, but deliberate, you know, targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure bombing campaign that was presumably supposed to do something, but has had no effect on Ukrainian will and no effect on Ukrainian ability to fight, but has expended the Russian precision, you know, weapon supply that's worthy of a medal, I guess. So it's it it is it is strange. And Giselle, what I would tell you is, Putin continues to be in a place that I think has to be absolutely novel to him, which is that he can't do anything right. He can't spin a story. He can't carry his own constituency. He can't regain control of the narrative in Russia. He can't, he can't, he can't. And that's not an experience that he's had for almost his entire reign. If I may ask a question about the um, war in disguise, so to speak, in, in Ukraine. And the question was prompted on, on, on my end by, by a Twitter thread by Paul Krugman, the brilliant trade economist and, you know, less than brilliant, less than impressive pundit and and commentator in my estimation, where he references Philip O'Brien's work on the Second World War. And, and so, so the question really is about uh, the sort of war of attrition that's going on. So on the one hand, Russians are showering Ukrainian cities and civilian infrastructure with drones, missiles, whatever they can get their hands on. Ukrainians are successful at shooting those things down, most of them anyway. Uh, but the problem is that Ukrainians are using expensive weaponry to, to, to get there. And uh, even if we keep giving them Patriots and, and other other equipment, I mean, there are opportunity costs for, 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 for Ukrainians. They could have been asking for other stuff if they didn't have to, if they hadn't had to deal with this, with, 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 with this sort of perpetual attack on the, on the civilians and electricity companies, et cetera, et cetera. So, 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 so the, question he is asking and I'm sort of asking on his behalf is, you know, like who runs out of equipment first? Is it is it that the Russian supply of drones and other sort of cheap stuff that they can throw at Ukrainian cities runs out first? Or are Ukrainians uh, risking running out of the fairly sophisticated air defenses, some of which the West has been providing them with? There are a number of things that make that a little bit complicated and also a little bit tangential. It's not an opportunity cost because the Ukrainians have been asking for everything that they have needed. And the U.S. has been increasingly reluctantly giving them more advanced systems. The The U.S. is not not giving Ukraine M1 tanks because we're giving them NASAMs or Patriot. We're not giving them M1 tanks because the Biden administration has made some decision that it doesn't want to give them M1 tanks for some incomprehensible reason. Um, so I don't; these things aren't especially connected with one another. And I don't. And the truth is that the Ukraine—it's not as if the Ukrainian cities hadn't been under attack before this, and it's not as if they haven't needed air defense before this and anti-missile defense. But the Russians have been missling their their cities throughout this war. So. 
we should have given them NASMs a long time ago. We should have given them Patriot a long time ago. And in a modern war, you need modern air defense systems. So that's one thing. That, so that opportunity cost, I don't think, is meaningful. In terms of the the missile to missile, you know, missile to drone cost ratio, I you know, I get that. It's important to recognize that the Ukrainians are shooting down drones with lots of different systems. So yes, they're using high-end systems. They're also using rifles and shotguns. And, and and old style anti aircraft guns. Yeah, and I mean all kinds of stuff. It's just it's not they have they have a whole uh, a panoply of stuff that they're using, of which the high end systems are only a part. And so, if they ran out of NASMs, they would go back to shooting, you know, or to relying on the others, and they would be less effective. But they would still be doing it. In the meantime, it's better to be able to, sh- to shoot down one hundred percent of the drones than eighty percent of the drones. So like that. But the other thing is Ukraine isn't paying for these weapons. So the the real question is is you know can the wet, who wins the attrition? so it's it's misstating what the what the gradient is. It's the who's, whose magazine is bigger. Right. It's but it's Russia's or the West's. Okay, well, you know, Russia's economy you know was the size of Australia's when meaning no disrespect to my Australian friends when this war started. I suspect it's smaller now. The orders of magnitude here are the Russians get crushed if we if we feel like crushing them. Say nothing of the Iranians. So I, I don't. I just I think this is a category error. I don't think this is a is a meaningful way to be thinking about this problem. But isn't it also political will? Um, because the question I guess inherent to that is it amplifies the costs of the military aid we're giving. And here we know that that's not a lot. But of course, this is an argument used here by the by some of the members of the Republican Party and beyond. And, and then with historical parallels, I, I find it interesting that um, the World War II connection was um, was made in this context. I've been trying to catch up on my World War II battlefield knowledge over the holidays, and and of course, you know the the most banal element of that is in the wars, not the not the wars of Georgia or Chechnya, where you know the. Uh, force um, ratio was just um, incomprehensibly different, but the long wars um, in World War II, in um, the Finland-Soviet Union war and beyond, and what the the military officers in uh, Moscow are still being taught is exactly what we've seen um, through the Donbass wars, um, taking inch by inch, no matter how big the cost. Um, and of course, always having limited military capabilities that don't work, um, always badly equipped, always problems with C2. But for them, you know, throwing another 300,000, even if they're badly equipped, much like you were saying, um, human waves is not a problem. So I understand on on the one hand that um, when we're looking at just numbers, the West is completely um, uh, superior. But when we're looking at long-term political will with the hesitation that we have in the Biden administration and in Western Europe, in one or two years at the same pace, things are not going to end up the way we would have wanted to end them them this year, right? Um, And so... 
is it isn't it back to Putin is trying to play the long game? He doesn't care about costs. We've already found missiles improvised with I don't know chips from the washing machines from Bucha or something um, uh, fabricated or or um, manufactured after um, February. Isn't it that he's playing the long war? He doesn't have that much accountability, whereas we could change our minds in a year and say, well, we've done enough and uh, we're out of here. So, Fred, Fred, the Eastern Front in World War II in 30 seconds or fewer. <laughs> so I, I have to say, I, I, I think we need to put away all of the World War II Eastern Front knowledge that we have when we're talking about the Russian military today, because the Russian military today is so far inferior in every respect to the Red Army as of 1942 or 1943 that it bears no comparison. And in particular, in the realm of military industry, it's actually the Soviet military industry and the mobilization of Soviet military industry happens to be a hobby horse of mine. It's something that I studied extensively. And in part, I did because there's incredibly there's an incredible wealth of Soviet theory, as well as doctrine and practice about exactly how to do that. And the Soviet Soviet forces in the Second World War were, were actually fantastically well equipped, and they were equipped, among other things, with one of the best tanks that any army ever fielded in the war, which is the T thirty four tank, for the purpose for which it was designed, long before we started giving them Shermans, and they were churning out T thirty four tanks by the tens of, tens of thousands, and they were churning out artillery shells by the millions, which makes it all the more shocking that Russia today is incapable of fulfilling the needs of its soldiers with World War II era technology, like a 152 or 122 millimeter artillery shell. The fact that the Russians are running out of artillery shells is almost inconceivable, given everything that you said and all of the historical precedent and everything that they had been taught. The one thing on earth that you would expect a Russian military industry to be able to produce in as much quantity as you could ever imagine is artillery shells. So you can take that as an example of how badly broken and how thoroughly and systematically broken is the Russian military uh, military industry. And the fact that Putin has not mobilized it to this day, hasn't fully mobilized it, and I suspect can't actually mobilize it for various reasons is one of the things that makes this completely different from World War II. Another thing that makes it completely different is that the Russians here are the invaders. This was a war of choice and a war of aggression. And it is true that the Soviets had problems with defectors, with people, Nazi sympathizers, with uh, various other uh, groups that didn't want to fight with the Red Army and they had NKVD squads to shoot people who were going to run away and all that kind of stuff. It is also true that many millions of Soviets actually fought with relative enthusiasm in a war that they rapidly came to understand was existential for them in the most literal possible sense. That is the exact opposite of the kind of uh, human capital that the Russians are throwing into this war. The Russian Mobics have done everything that they could to avoid getting mobilized. Remember, these are the guys who are not of the 700,000 who fled Russia rather than get mobilized. Consider that they mobilized 300,000 and 700,000 fled. That's shocking. And that should tell us something. And then when we look at this quality and these guys, why did we just have this uh, fantastically successful Ukrainian strike in Makivka? Because we had a whole bunch of Mobics 
packed. Turn on their telephones. Well, yeah, and that the <laughs> Russian, I mean, it also tells you something that the Russian MOD immediately blames the Mobics, but these guys are packed yeah. together in a way that if a U.S. officer or any allied or professional officer had stacked several hundred guys together in an unhardened building with all like that kind of stuff, he would be cashiered immediately. Right. It would be next to an ammo dump. Yeah. Yeah. But they did that in part because yeah. if they don't do that, the guys run away. And not only do they run away, but they run away and they terrorize the local population in various ways. So this is just this is a completely different animal from the Red Army. And it's a completely different animal from any army that's going to be effective at doing anything except taking horrific casualties and possibly grinding on the Ukrainians to a point where then we get to the question of will. Now, Ukrainian will, because this is an existential war for Ukraine, Ukrainian will is not very fragile. Um, certainly, I think not through this year. Western will, look, I mean, the problem is we have shown a willingness to be extremely irresponsible and irresponsible of our own interests, even when the costs to us are relatively low. Now, you could say $40 billion is not a low cost. And I would say cost is cost. The, the value of something measures based on what you're the value is very high. Yeah. So what we're buying is the destruction of Russian military potential and a bastion again, a whole bunch of things that we've talked about, all of the things that we were buying for this. And the cost to us is money. If our leaders choose to lead and choose to make it clear that this cost continues to be worth paying. Cost is relative. And if Putin continues to demonstrate every day in a new way that he really is Satan, which is the other thing that is maintaining public support in the West for Ukraine. And but I don't think that's going to change, by the way. I don't think Putin is going to stop being Satan. Then there's no reason why our will should break. Maybe it will. But the cost balance here, let me just one, one last thing. It is not the case that Putin doesn't care about the cost that he is bearing. I know that he cares because A, he's lying about it. B, he's trying to conceal it. And C, he's trying to get ever more autocratic and oppressive control of his population because he knows that this is a problem. He is demonstrating in every possible way that he is, in fact, very worried about keeping his people behind him in a circumstance where he doesn't, remember, he doesn't have the Soviet oppression apparatus. And he has expended a certain portion of his oppression apparatus in the war in Ukraine. You have to ask questions. If the Russian people actually started to protest en masse against this again, if he actually had opposition grow in multiple cities across Russia, would he have the ability actually to crush it? It's very far from clear. I don't expect that to happen. I really don't. I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see that because Putin is going to meter the costs that he imposes on his people to keep resentment short of that. But he is accountable in that ultimate accountability sort of way that he can lose his people with these costs. And I think he is very worried about that. To shift uh, a little bit, but Fred, it's a subject that you've uh, brought up a couple of times, and that is trying to, to understand the logic of uh, Western supply to uh, to the Ukrainians. We now seem to have, at long last, crossed the threshold in that the French are transferring a handful of sort of assault gun type light tanks or whatever you want to call them, wheeled vehicles with a big cannon, but not much uh, protection 
President Biden was asked yesterday, are we going to transfer our Bradley fighting vehicles to which he said, yes, can't wait for Jake Sullivan to walk that one back, but let's assume that it's the case. Why would we do that and not send M1s or long range, you know, ATACMS rounds or set about rounding up or drawing down F-16s or all the other things that we have talked about multiple times. This is like a meatloaf song where the boy keeps trying to court the girl and the girl says, no, not just yet. What the heck is going on? Well, look, I mean, I think the overarching thing that's driving all of this is the fear of Russian escalation has been the framework within which the administration has seen this entire conflict. And the the first priority that this administration has set itself is to prevent the war from escalating. And doing stuff for Ukraine has come second to that. And that's just, I mean, it's very clear that that's their order of prioritization. And I think actually, if you ask them, they would tell you that explicitly. And then they would say, how could it be otherwise? And I actually even understand and accept in principle parts of the argument that say, how could it be otherwise? Because of course, I don't want this to turn into a Russia-NATO war. And I certainly don't want it to turn into a nuclear war, of course. Sure. The problem- But but yeah, but what distinguishes you know one level from the next? Okay, but so look, I mean, we have to start by situating ourselves in their intellectual framework, which is, it's about escalation. Okay, so now we have the basic other phenomenon, which is that we have been negotiating with ourselves throughout this war about what we think might provoke an escalation. And we've been wrong almost every time, as far as I can tell, because pretty much everything that we've done at one point earlier in the war, we said we couldn't do because it would provoke an escalation. And then there wasn't an escalation, but we seem to be unable or unwilling to break out of this kind of conversation and self-negotiation. So... I think that that is the basic framework. Now, once you're in that mindset where you are inclined not to give the Ukrainians things because you are afraid that it will provoke some unspecified and increasingly hard to imagine Russian escalation, then you can say things to yourself like, well, we can't give them M1s because the logistics package for the M1 is too big and hard. And then we would have to train the Ukrainians and it would take a long time to train them. And so that doesn't make any sense, but we can give them Bradleys because they're simpler systems and they can drive them and fix them and that kind of stuff. So then that's how you make that kind of rationalization. And then you say, well, we can't give them F-16s because we have the same, all the same kind of, right? All that kind of stuff. And then you say, yeah, that's interesting. But of course, you know, we're in month 10 of this war and it was apparent many, many months ago that we were going to need to do these things. If you had started training then, if you had started getting the logistics packages, you know, we could have done this. And they said, well, yes, of course, but we didn't. And, you know, so now at this point, it doesn't really make sense. And so you can always make that, well, we didn't do it in time for it to matter now. So we can't do it now. And then we don't think about, well, maybe we should do it now so that it can matter in the summer. <laughs> right. But... These aren't stupid people who are making these decisions. I, I, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for for Jake Sullivan's intelligence. That 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 isn't that isn't the issue. That isn't the question. I, I think all of this is operating within the rubric of of an escalation theory and a theory of managing escalation that I happen to think is fundamentally flawed and wrong, but that is leading to these decisions that I think are very unfortunate. Yeah, and we all know that political science theory 
rejects uh, uh, facts uh, whenever they're convenient. In the light of specifically this, I mean, I would I would argue that this idea of opportunity costs is 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 is, is a useful one because I mean the resources that the Ukrainians have are not unlimited. They are partly not unlimited because of our own choices, driven by this fear of escalation, and uh, that means that in this war, you know, Putin might get away with just you know throwing the kitchen sink at the problem while being incompetent, while having a totally incompetent military, while not having any significant industrial base. Uh, and the Ukrainians will be busy defending themselves against, you know, the kitchen sink being thrown at their cities. Uh, we will pat ourselves on our backs, saying, "Look, we are giving them uh, defenses; they are using them." Uh, and at some point down the road, the possibility of freezing the conflict, of claiming some sort of territorial gains, might not be completely out, out of the question for, for 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 Putin. And I think any outcome short of Ukrainians retaking their own country. Is, is one that that should leave us deeply unsatisfied. So I think it's a really important point that you're making, Dalibor. And I'll just begin with the last one. Putin hasn't lost this war yet. This is becoming increasingly a mantra that people are saying, oh, Putin's already lost. And that is driving a conversation that says, so we should just get the Ukrainians to accept the situation now because we've already achieved our objectives because Putin's already been weakened and he's already lost. And if we push it too far, then we might push him to escalation, right? This is the actually this the whole justification for this sort of push for getting trying to get Zelensky to agree to some kind of ceasefire that Putin hasn't offered. The first thing, Putin hasn't lost this war. If this war ends with the Russians in control of the 100,000 some odd square kilometers that they currently occupy... That will be a victory for Putin. We talked about this before on your show, but it's bare saying again. Xi Jinping will also look at that and say, okay, even if things go very badly for me at the beginning, I will outlast the West and I will get at, at higher cost, but I will win. And the Iranians will come to the predators around the world will come to their conclusion. So Putin hasn't lost. Now, how, how do we know that Putin hasn't lost? Putin hasn't lost because we, the West, pounded Zelensky into offering to, to negotiate and uh, having to offer conditions and, and all that sort of stuff, even though Putin had given no indication that he was actually interested in that. We pounded Zelensky into doing that, and Zelensky did. And the Russian response, the Putin's response, reminds me a little bit of uh, a line from The Princess Bride. You wish to surrender to me? Very well, I accept. He's he's come back with, great, yes, we can have negotiations. You first agree to the illegal annexations of all of your territory. You, we also, by the way, will not have direct negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. We'll have direct negotiations between Russia and the U.S. as if Putin were the Taliban and uh, Zelensky were Ashraf Ghani. Where do you get that idea? That seems to be, <laughs> frankly, well, okay, I, that seems to be the idea that it feels like is in Putin's mind because he and I, I'm happy to suggest that he is the one who thinks that he's the Taliban in that equation. But he is very, very clear that there is no negotiating partner for him in Kiev. We, we seem to have a hard time internalizing this in our own discourse, but it is clear as day in the Russian discourse. There is no point at which the Russians have suggested that Putin would sit down with Zelensky and negotiate anything. Nor have the Russians ever walked away from their demands for regime change and a whole bunch of other things. So fundamentally, the Russian position continues to be 
you give me everything I want and I'll stop fighting. For now. Yeah. Right? Now, this has had an interesting effect, of course, because the I think the U.S. and the West have put a lot of pressure on Zelensky to show a willingness to negotiate. And I'll give us the benefit of the doubt. I'll give our administration the benefit of the doubt and say one of the things they wanted to do was to smoke Putin out. Okay, well, they did because Putin has now made it perfectly clear what his conditions actually are. But those conditions are the conditions of a guy who does not think that he has lost. This is the next thing we need to internalize. So if we actually want this war to end sooner, we have to make Putin lose more. And the mechanism we have for doing that is supporting the Ukrainians more, which brings me to the last point at Dalibor Tidab, which is very important. If you're really worried about escalation, Having this thing drag on is a super bad idea because Putin's escalation options right now are really bad from his perspective. He has no good escalation options now. He has only crazy ones. The longer we give him actually to put his country on a war footing, actually to rebuild his military, actually to prepare for a serious conflict with NATO, actually to do a bunch of other things, with the war continuing either in a semi-frozen state or in an active state, the higher the probability of escalation goes. The sooner we can bring this to a conclusion by forcing Putin to recognize that he has lost and will lose, the more we can mitigate the more serious risk of escalation, which I am afraid that this administration is not giving sufficient weight to. I think this is a good note to end because it opens up a lot of um, food for thought. And unfortunately, we don't do video, but um, you should know if you're listening that more than any other time after many of um, Fred's visits for the last 20 minutes, we sat here <laughs> nodding at everything that Fred has been saying. <laughs> um, so um, thank you again so much for um, for joining us, for giving this us this very broad overview. We know what you expect um, and we know how we can make a difference in arguing more for deconstructing the fear of escalation. Let's just keep it at that. Oh, do you have to put the word deconstruction in there? I mean, <laughs> both academics. Yeah, really. Um, so from me, Julia Zoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalibor thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod and sign up for for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.